All right, so today we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic to hear their pastor talk about when you show up to church. You're like, boy, I really hope he talks about money today. Um, especially if you've seen the Righteous Gemstones, where, in the, you know, in the roller coasters and the, you know, prosperity gospels everywhere. Okay, so, well, we're sort of going to talk about money, not really in the usual way. But let's think about money for a minute. Let's think about wealth and our culture. Um, I don't know if you guys heard this or if you saw this, but it was everywhere at the beginning of December last year. It was one of those stories that I think the AP put out and then everybody picked it up, especially the financial papers like uh, Bloomberg Online and Wall Street Journal and stuff. And we crossed a threshold where the top 1% of wealth, havers, whatever you call them, you know, people, have more wealth now than the entire middle class. Right, so everybody was waiting for this threshold to officially cross. And when that story hit, all of the articles, the underlying question was, there were all these underlying questions about how do we deal with money as a society? How much is too much to let one person have, kind of a thing? Uh, how much of somebody else's money does society have a right to? And all these different questions and all these papers took different sort of... Um, uh, different sort of takes, but it was a big story because wealth is a serious driving factor in a lot of what we do as a society. Um, in every major election in the ba last bunch of years here in the U.S., um, the economy has been one of the biggest issues, and I'm sure it'll be again. And um, as we're coming up, Trump is really hoping the economy doesn't have like a spike right before the election because anything, you know, he wants it to go bad so that he can win, right? Because he knows if he can go to his base and his people and say, you know how gas is high and you know, you're, the inflation and all this stuff. And he'll, he'll talk a lot about this, and Biden will too, and he'll say, look, inflation is down and gas is down, all this stuff. And money is a huge driving force because they know if people are satisfied about the way things are going about money, they're going to vote for me. The reason that's going to work like that is because you guys, you know what? Money's great. Think about what money does. Money buys security and it buys peace of mind and food and shelter and MacBooks and Playstations and power and control. That's where the ultimate thing though is, right? Money buys power and it buys control. And it, this is how it's been through all of human history. All of human history is basically a struggle over money and a struggle over stuff. Let me give you some examples, just historical examples. Think about British, but you can do all of them, colonialism. What happened there is the main idea with colonialism was we want to go over to these other cultures, exploit them for their resources, take all their resources, and then send them back here, and we don't really care what happens over there quite as much. We want their stuff. And one example that really hit home this week, I was reading this thing about um, the uh, Irish potato famine and how serious that was. And then all of a sudden, my favorite joke got a lot less funny. You want to hear my favorite joke growing up? How many potatoes does it take to kill an Irishman? None. Now that, because that, I didn't know anything about the potato, it's a, still a funny joke. But now that I actually know about the potato famine, you guys, this was brutal. I didn't understand, you know, I didn't learn about this in history at all. And so uh, what happened with the Irish potato famine was there was a, some sort of disease with the potatoes that started in, I think it was Mexico, actually, and sort of spread all over the world, and a bunch of potatoes all over the world died. And Ireland grew a lot of potatoes, and so a lot of the Irish people starved to death. But here's, here's what I never had learned about the Irish potato famine. Ireland grew a ton of food besides potatoes, but all, they ate the potatoes, and they sent everything else over to England. 
And when the potato famine hit, they said to England, hey, can we just eat this other stuff we're growing? And England was like, nah, man, that's our stuff. And so England took all the food from Ireland over to England, stuffed their faces, and then everybody in Ireland died. They went, they exploited, they took the stuff, and it's all for, for what? For money and power and that sort of stuff. Money drives people, right? These businesses weren't willing to give up their business to make sure millions of Irish people didn't die. Um, in other historical examples, uh, in 2008, think about the financial crisis and the greed on a corporate level and how money was driving a lot of these bankers to go, I don't really care what happens to society and I don't care what happens to these people that are taking out these mortgages and all this stuff as long as I get mine and I get my Porsche and I get whatever. And it drove people to make some very immoral decisions. Think of guys like Bernie Madoff and scams like that. One of those Netflixes or Hulus or something has the like two or three part documentary about Bernie Madoff. It's infuriating if you ever watch it. But that guy and the love for money is really something else. Uh, but most war, as you look back in history, a lot of the war, not all of it, but a lot of war traces back to, I want what they have. And I'm going to go over, I want their wealth, I want their money, I want to control that area. And it all comes back to, you know, uh, a lot of it comes back to just that love for money. Think of slavery. What is slavery? I'm going to exploit your labor so I can get a little bit richer. I'm going to ruin everything about your entire existence so I can have like this much more. Right. I'm, it's really horrible. And it's that love for money. And so that's like the global stage. But let's get a little bit more personal. Let's let's it's easy to go when it's easy for a pastor to get up and be like, yeah, Bernie Madoff and Hitler were bad, you know, and everybody's like, yeah, they were. And then I go, and so you're bad, too. And, you know, so let's do that part. Right. We're all pretty bad, too. Um, estimates vary from what I, it's one of those things. I was like, I don't know how they figured this out. So they vary between 20 and 40%, but estimates are between 20 and 40% of marriages that break up, break up because of fighting over money, right? And like, it's a pretty serious thing that happens within households. Um, a lot of relationships are cracked because, you know, that one guy that never wants to pay for dinner, the cheap guy that never tips or whatever, like people's love for money impacts even personal relationships. Think about how many people use the need for, I need a little bit more to do things they know are wrong to climb the ladder at work. And if you've ever had a real job, which I've been doing this since I was 20, you know, and the last real job I got fired because I wouldn't break labor laws to save the company a little bit of money, right? And so they said, well, you're fired from that. It's funny, we were talking about that now, and he was saying he has to, Joseph was telling me, he has to like sign a paper now that says if he leaves early, it's because they're not making me. And I was like, that's what I got fired for. Because anyway, so I guess whoever, somebody sued Jamba Juice back in the day. I never, you know. Um, but anyway, like I saw this in the one job I ever had. And I'm sure if you've ever had a real job, you'll see people do things that they know if you ask them, these things are wrong, but it gets them a little bit ahead because they get a little bit more of a raise. They get a little better stock options, whatever it is. Money drives people to do all kinds of crazy things. And that's why... Jesus talked about money a ton, not just like a couple of times, all the time Jesus was talking to people about money. And when we did the Gospel of Luke, we did a handful of sermons talking about money. And what we're going to read today is a continuation of sort of, of those teachings and those themes. So we're going to touch on some of that stuff, but we're going to dig a little of it back up, but we're not going to go completely back into it. If you want to find out more, I think you can go on the porch website and there's like that word cloud of all the sermons. So just click the one that says money. I'm sure the Luke ones will pop up. Um, but what we're going to see is that the Christian faith offers us a unique 
uh, a unique way to break the bond that money has with us, like the, the hold that money has on us. Christianity offers us a way out of that that no other faith does that no other system does. And that's what Jesus was constantly teaching about. He knew that money was the biggest idol in the world around us. It, it, and it's, it was back then, and it still is. People are driven by their love for money. And um, so he talked about it a lot. And we're going to look at... And so he talked about it a lot with his disciples. Then he died, and he rose again, spoiler alert, at the end of Luke, took off into heaven. Then his disciples sat around and talked about the things that Jesus had taught them. And you know the subject came up. Do you remember when Jesus said this about money? Do you remember when he said this other thing about money? And as they're dealing with their money. And so what we're going to see today is the fruit of the teaching of Jesus in the lives of these disciples. So let's jump in. We're going to read, let me look up here, um, just a short little text today. It's four, chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now, um, I broke this up into some sections here. So the first is, um, we're talking about money, but we're also talking about... Um, I, this is a, a terrible transition here, but we're also going to be talking about unity and the way that our unity means that that's the strongest bond. Our bond with each other is stronger than our bond with money because our bond with Christ, right? And so the claim here is that these churches were so united they cared about each other more than they cared about money. So first is the claim of unity. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Last week we read about the prayer. And they were, uh, let me give you a little background uh, if you haven't been here. So the, the, the early church is just getting started. And at one point, Peter and John were arrested for healing a guy. And they stood up to the Sanhedrin, the very people that had just murdered Jesus a few months before. And they stood up and they said, you guys are the idiots that killed Jesus. He was the Messiah. You're supposed to be the spiritual leaders. You have no idea what you're doing. And you can go ahead and keep threatening us. And we're going to keep telling people about Jesus. And we don't care what you think. That's the, the, the summary, the New John version. And then they go back to their friends, which is one of the best verses in the Bible. They go back to their friends and the church people, and they have this beautiful prayer. And the whole prayer is just, God, you're amazing. You did this. You did that. You planned this whole thing. You are always in control. Now give us more boldness to speak your word. Right? We, we want to not shrink in the face of this persecution. And then there was an earthquake. And then Luke gives us the editorial note, and they continued to speak with boldness. Their prayer was answered by the earthquake that God was like, yeah, this is really cool what you guys are praying. And the prayer was answered in the rest of the book of Acts. And so the very next sentence in the book of Acts is, now the full number of those who at this point is probably more than 20,000 were of one heart and soul. And we're supposed to remember the prayer that we've just read. And at the beginning of that prayer, do you remember what it said? And they raised their voice, singular. In English translations, they always make it plural, but in Greek, it's singular. Together, they raised their voice. One, they prayed with one voice, and they, they prayed to the Lord. And so here we see them now. Here's another example of that unity. And um, uh, so here we go. The, so that's the claim. Here's the proof of the unity. And nobody said, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So the proof that they were united is the prayer that we saw and the way that they prayed. The second proof, though, is the way that they treated each other. They said, I love you more than I love my stuff. Now, let's be honest. Again, stuff is great. I have some great stuff, some cool guitars and my iPad that I'm literally teaching off right now. But like I said, the love for this stuff is so easy to creep in and take the place of the Lord. 
And it's so easy to become the most important thing in my life. And that's what idolatry is. It's just, there's something in the Old Testament or whatever. And then, you know, in like the ancient world, it was, I have this little fake God. Um, but in our times, we'll, we talk about idolatry. It's just anything that takes the place of the Lord in your life. And it's where you put your hope and your trust in my stuff instead of in God. For some people, idols are family, control. Whatever. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of different things we make idols. Money is the biggest one. And um, the Greek word for like wealth is uh, this word mammon. You ever heard this word? And it means kind of like stuff, wealth, money, all of it sort of in, in one thing. They didn't quite think money the way that we do because they did a lot more trading and they, did, you know, they didn't have central banks and that sort of stuff. Um, there's a story, though, where Jesus... Uh, is hanging out, and this, the story of the rich young ruler from Luke 18, and we did a whole sermon on this, and this guy, he comes up to Jesus, and he says, all right, hey, dude, uh, you're a pretty great teacher, you know, and uh, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? If you're so smart, tell me what to do. And so Jesus, in <laughs> brilliant fashion, he rattles off a bunch of the commandments, murder, adultery, you know, the usual stuff, the ones he knows this guy uh, has not done, but he skips the first few, about making sure God is the number one in your life, right? Making sure God is the center of your life. So he rattles off the easy stuff. Don't cheat on your wife or kill anybody. And the guy's like, oh, good. I did all that stuff. And then Jesus goes, great. Now let's deal with the first part of the Ten Commandments. What I need you to do is take all of your crap, go sell it all, and give it to poor folks. Then you can come and you can follow me. You know why? Because money is your God, not Yahweh, right? Not the Lord. And the guy gets super bummed out, and he doesn't follow Jesus. He knows, I can never give up my God. Jesus also, earlier in the gospel stories in Matthew 6, he says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, do I have this up here? Oh, yeah, I do. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? We're not talking about that part right now. This is the important part. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Jesus is plain. You know when Jesus always uh, sort of hides what he's saying and makes people figure it out? Not so much right here. You cannot serve God in money. There is no, huh, I wonder what he meant by that. It's pretty plain. He says it. If, if money is your God, then the Lord isn't then Yahweh isn't. There's no, you don't get to have two gods. That's not how this works. We're not polytheists. And so what Jesus says here is he gives us this whole new perspective on our stuff, especially in this beginning part. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He talks about storing up treasure in heaven. Um, the gospel gives us eternal perspective. It helps us to see who we are in light of the fact that we're all going to exist forever. Okay, you think, okay, I have 80 years. You don't have 80 years. You have trillions of years of existence. And the gospel gives you a new perspective on, that, on how you deal with money then in light of that. So, for instance, imagine that you had a million dollars in the bank and you're very sick and, I don't know, this is one of those ridiculous pastor illustrations, okay? Let's just imagine somehow you knew you were going to die tomorrow and sickness, whatever. And you really want one last amazing meal, 
from your favorite restaurant and you go to your favorite restaurant, Tommaso's or whatever it is. And Giorgio says, okay, I'll make you your favorite pizza. But he knows you have a lot of money and you're going to die. He's like, it'll be 500 grand for your favorite meal. You'd be like, all right, here you go. I don't care. I'm done. Can't take it with you, right? You wouldn't care. But if you thought that you still had 80 more years left to live and Giorgio says, hey, I'll make you that pizza for 500 grand, you would never do it, right? I got to buy a house. I got to do this and that. You'd think about the perspective of your life changes the way you're going to spend that money. Eternal perspective changes the way we spend every dollar and the way we think about our money is that uh, we are going to live forever. So why don't we do the things with our money that we're going to care about when we're dead? That's what Jesus says here. And this perspective, this sort of eternal perspective on money, really had an impact on the way that this early church lived. They knew for a fact that they were eternal beings, and they knew that their relationships with each other were going to last for trillions of years. I don't know. What's bigger than trillions? That's as high as I go. Do you say zillions? That's a real number? That's not just something little kids say? Zillions of years? I don't know what's after that. Isn't Google a number? Okay, for is it Googles of years? Okay, like to where we don't even understand these numbers. That's how long our relationships are going to last. And they knew that. And with that perspective, they realized this relationship with this church person is the most important thing in my life because of the eternity of it. And so my relationship with my money is not eternal. So why don't I invest that money into these relationships? And so what they did was nobody said anything was his own, which is just a fancy way to say that they took care of each other. I don't think that's a literal statement. I think that's like a hyperbolic statement. I don't think Peter was like, it's not my jacket and threw it up. You know, I think Peter still probably had a jacket. You know what I mean? Uh, but I think if somebody needed it, he would have given it to him. And one distinction I always make when I teach these passages is this. This is communalism. This is not communism, right? And I think the difference there is this. And this is really oversimplified. But with communal living, what you're saying is everything that I have is yours. And communism, and you have a right to everything of mine. And I, I want to take care of you more than I want my stuff. With communism, it's sort of the flip. It's more like we all have a right to everything that you own. You get the difference? It's more self-giving. And so hopefully you're thinking as you think about, boy, would I be willing to give everything that I own to some church person? you're thinking that that level of faith is impossible. And the truth is, it is impossible. So how do they do it? How did this early church actually do something like this? Oh, wait, I want to jump back and say something too. This style of living that these guys did, um, remember we talked about in the book of Acts, the difference between prescriptive and descriptive, like what happened versus what should happen in every church always. This is descriptive because what ends up happening is they all sell their stuff, and then a famine hits, everybody's broke, and all the other churches have to take a collection and send money back to Jerusalem, right? So this was more of a, the church started, everybody was here for Pentecost, we all got saved and didn't go home, and we need to figure out a way to take care of each other. But the principle behind this is an eternal principle, that the churches need to be willing to take care of each other. The way this played out doesn't have to happen exactly like this in every church. All right, here we go. So let's keep going. Now, the reason for the unity. How did this church do this? And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So you remember the most important verse in the book of Acts is this verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
So when God sends the Holy Spirit to his church, it's going to give them a power. And that power is to witness, which means to share what they know. And that word in Greek is martyr, even to the point of death, the word witness, like you're willing to share. And so the power is not uh, just Peter in this verse here. It's not just Peter and John and the other apostles going, yeah, I saw the resurrection. It's I'm telling you because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Every day, the disciples and the apostles, they got up and they said, I had lunch with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. We had some fish and he was really there a couple of days after I saw them nail him to that cross. And they're like, are you sure? I'm sure. Would you be willing to testify to that? Yeah, I'd be willing to die for that. That's how sure I am. When you sit with somebody who's like been through something, you understand it in a whole new way. Let me show you. Um, let me read you a news article. Okay, this is from SF Gate. This was in the Chronicle, I think, in 2000, October 31st. That's Halloween, y'all. 2005. This is the article. A quickly spreading fire caused by the explosion of a 500-gallon propane filling station destroyed the back half of a boarded-up building, uh, building today in San Francisco's Mission District. The fire, which started around 3 p.m., forced the closure of South Vaness Avenue between 15th and 17th Streets, as well as two street parallels on Vaness Avenue. The 500-gallon tank exploded, was on a truck that was parked in the back of a Hertz rental equipment parking lot. It took 120 firefighters about an hour to extinguish the blaze. The Hertz facility was not damaged. Okay, so and a lot of, most of you weren't in San Francisco. A lot of, uh, some of you were in San Francisco when that happened. Does anybody remember this fire? No, it's not that important, right? All right, let me tell you a story. One day I was driving, this is a true story, my Kia Rio. You guys, that car was terrible. And you know where I was? I was on South Van Ness Avenue. And I was just singing along to, what year was this? 2005, so probably the Killers or something. I'm Mr. Brightside, you know, and I'm screaming in my car because I'm all by myself. And all of a sudden, the entire world shook, like shook, shook. And I looked at the end of the block in front of me, and there was a fireball. And I don't mean like, oh, something's on fire over there. I mean like the world over there is on fire. And then what I heard was, boom, another one. And I went, uh-oh, that one sounded like it was behind me. And I turned around and I looked and I didn't see any fire back there. And I heard, boom, another one. And I was like, these are, something is happening. This is 2005, y'all. This is right after 9-11. And I am in a major city. And the first thing that I thought was, I'm right in the middle of whatever is part two. And so what I did was I three-point turned my car completely illegally, drove, you guys, I broke some traffic laws. And I got out of there. And I went back to my church down the street and I went up to the roof of the church and I took a video of the smoke and the fire. And for another half an hour, you could hear boom, boom. Now here's what happened. I, nobody knows how the fire started exactly, but a 500 pound propane tank exploded in a propane filling station. And that's the fireball that I saw. And if you don't know what a 500 pound propane tank looks like, it's not one of the ones you put in your barbecue. Wait, what is that, like a five-pound propane tank or something? Two pounds? Those are the little ones. This is a giant thing, and it exploded, sent a fireball up in the air. But you know what was there? All of the little propane tanks in the, in the little side area. And they were exploding. And I went home, and I watched the news, 
and the news showed what happened was the propane tanks were exploding and flying over my car and sticking into a brick building behind me. And they showed right the building that was right behind me. There was a bunch of propane tanks in the side. And nobody got hurt except the guy working at the Hertz thing, like got smoke in his lungs and had to go to the hospital, but he was totally fine. Now, why did I tell you that story? Do you feel the difference between when I read you the news article and when I told you the story? I was there. I felt the heat. <laughs> I thought I was going to die for a minute. Like, I didn't know what was happening. Now, I'm guessing you're going to remember that one time in the Mission District, a propane tank exploded. Every day, these apostles got up and they said, you know what I did? I had lunch with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee a couple of days after they nailed him to the cross. And I was like, is it really you? And he was like, yeah, Thomas, look at this, <laughs> right? And, I, and Peter says, and I felt so bad for what I had done to him. And he took me aside and he was like, dude, feed my sheep. You're fine. Like, you're going to run this church, right? They had these stories and every day they told these stories to thousands and thousands of people. And then those thousands and thousands of people went, the way that I'm looking at my entire world is wrong. And they have this new perspective built into them from through the witness of the apostles, they're looking at the face of Jesus. And then they're looking at their bank and they're going, I don't care about this anymore. I care about this. This is so real to me because of what these guys are doing. All right, let's keep going. Um, uh, here we go. So they're sharing this stuff, and this is what happened. Great grace was on them all. That's what I'm talking about. So I don't mean just saving grace, although that's true. I mean the grace of God uh, to fill them with the Spirit, the grace of God to give them a sense of His presence, to give them the apostles, to share these stories, to give them boldness, to draw the community together. In all these ways, grace was on them all, but I love what it says, a completely unnecessary word. Luke was writing this, and he was like, grace? No, not grace. Great grace. Like, mega grace. Tons of grace, right? There's so much of this grace that's happening within this community. All right, keep going. Now, the result then of this unity, there was not a needy person among them. Again, I think that's hyperbolic language. There was needy people among them. That's the whole point of this. But as the need happened... They fulfilled the need as a community. So there wasn't a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So I want you to think about how massive this is. Imagine you move to San Francisco and you get a job or whatever and something about stock options. I never had a job, right? And so... The company goes public, the stock, you get your money, you sell your thing, put a down payment on a house. It's been five years of working hard and working hard, and you get your beautiful house. Or imagine you're one of those people, you know, you live here, and you inherit a house, and it's been in your family for generations, and it's this beautiful thing. You know, you can share this with your family. And then some massive needs come up in church. Somebody gets cancer and can't afford the treatment. We live in America, so it's like, okay, they're going to die, I guess. And you go, boy, that treatment sounds like the same price as my house that I just did all this work for and I saved up. In our culture, that seems almost impossible to even think about, doesn't it? But that's literally what these guys were doing. They were selling. Most of them probably didn't buy these houses. Most of them probably inherited these houses. They were family land and all sorts of stuff. But again, it just goes to show that their bond with each other really was this tight. All right, here's the fifth 
thing, the, the ending thing here. One example, then, of this unity. So they're selling this stuff, they're taking care of each other. And so Joseph, thus Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. All right, I want to stop here for a second. Uh, I love, first off, that the first century church was given each other nicknames. And you know where they got that from? Jesus. Let me give you two examples. He goes, Simon, I don't like that name. I'm going to call you Peter because you're a rock. That's what it means, the rock. I'm going to call you Rocky. And you're the foundation, the rock that I'm going to build the whole church on, right? You know, like that kind of thing, right? So Peter. The second one is one time James and John were like, hey, Jesus, uh, those Samaritans were mean to us. Would you call down fire from heaven and consume all of them? And then a few few verses later, we read Jesus starts calling them the sons of thunder, (laughs) making fun of them constantly. Hey, you guys remember that time you wanted me to kill all the Samaritans? And that was their nickname, like, going forward. Another guy to nickname the twin. Okay, so first off, I just love nicknames, and I think it's hilarious. This guy got a nickname from the apostles in this vein of, let's just give each other nicknames. You know how cool of a guy you have to be for all of the apostles to get together and go, what should his nickname be? How about the guy who encourages everybody? Do you know somebody like this? We had one at my old church that was just always, um, I don't think anybody over there listens to this, so it's fine. Her name was Barbara. I called her Babs once. That was the only time I saw her not smiling. (laughs) She just always had a smile on, and she was, you guys know her, she was always just encouraging people, and she was so sweet. If this was today, Barbara would be the son of encouragement. But this is what the apostles did. They got together, and they called this guy the son of encouragement, like the one who just encourages people constantly is what this means. Now, I need you to remember this, and we're not going to talk about it today, because the fact that his nickname is the guy who encourages people is going to come up again in a few chapters, okay? So write that down, put it off, and we're going to leave it. So this guy, Barnabas, he's going to be a major player in the book of Acts. He, he, uh, he's a Levite, which means um, he's from the tribe, and we won't get into that, like where the priests and all those guys are from, the Levites. Um, and he's a native of Cyprus. Cyprus was an island just off the coast of uh, the land of Israel. It's still there. It's a big, massive island. It's also the first place that Paul and Barnabas, this guy, are going to go on a missionary journey. So the first time people send out missionaries, Barnabas goes, why don't we go to my hometown? Okay, so that's where they end up. This guy, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So he did what we've just read about. He took a field, he sold it, he gave the money to the apostles. This is the positive example. Next week, not next week, because I'll be at spring training, watching the Giants lose, probably. Um, Two weeks, we're going to read about a negative example. You guys know Ananias and Sapphira? So Barnabas is the positive. Ananias and Sapphira are the negative example. But that's where we're going to leave it. Now, this is how we'll kind of wrap this up here. Don't get too excited. This is how we're going to wrap this up, though. Um, The whole first part of the book of Acts, like I've been saying over and over again, Luke is portraying this sort of standoff, this battle between two competing temples. If you remember what a temple is, a temple is where the divine touches the earth, right? The overlap between the heavens and earth, where God comes to earth, you know. And so in the Old Testament, the temple was the temple in Jerusalem. And when they inaugurated the temple or the tabernacle, this happened at both, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And Luke is portraying this new community as the replacement temple, the new temple. So the first thing these guys all get together, they do, they talk about their leadership. Then the fire comes down from heaven, and instead of resting 
on a sacrifice, the fire, the tongues of fire rests on all of them. Like every one of these people now, instead of a building being the temple, each one of these people carries the presence of God with them everywhere they go. And Luke's whole point in the first part of the book of Acts is this new temple is way better than the old temple, right? This new temple is going to do the things that the Old Testament, I mean, the, the old temple, like Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, the things that they weren't doing. One big thing that the old temple was supposed to be doing was this, mercy ministry. So this is from Deuteronomy. This is the old temple's handbook. This is the main thing, one of the main things they're supposed to be doing. But there will be no poor among you. Sound familiar? There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all this commandment that I have commanded you today. For the Lord will bless you, the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you, this is, we won't worry about those verses. If, this is the important part. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient uh, for his need, whatever it may be. So in Deuteronomy, God specifically tells the folks in that old temple, look, you guys, I need you to take care of the poor people among you. Specifically, this verse here is what Luke picks up. There will be no poor among you. Let me give you three ways the Old Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Temple was failing. They were supposed to be, so with this area of, not just with this area of mercy ministry, there's three kind of big areas. They were supposed to be about grace and not merit. The whole Old Testament system was about sacrifices that weren't you. You're not the sacrifice. You don't earn your salvation. But these people, and we read about this all throughout the ministry of Jesus, had turned grace into merit had turned, look what I've done for you as the Lord your God, to look what you need to do for me so that I'll be the Lord your God. They, they flipped it. The second thing is this whole system was supposed to show people the power of God. You're supposed to show up and you're supposed to think about that sacrifice as you watch it bleed out and die and all this. You know, and you're supposed to think about what an amazing God has made a way for you to be saved. And then the third thing is these covenant people were supposed to take, like, this kind of stuff, this holiness, this mercy ministry, seriously. And the main temple, that first century temple in Judaism, wasn't doing any of those three things. But Luke says the new temple was, right? The new temple, they were all about grace, right? And great grace was upon them all. That's what he says. They were about um, the power of God. And we read that through the miracles and all the stuff that they've been doing. And they were about holiness. And we'll read about holiness specifically next week, the way God purifies his church. And so as we look at this, like, the new temple is holy and they take this God seriously and the old temple wasn't quite doing it, we need to ask the question now, we need to ask the question, though, how did the church do what the temple wasn't doing? What was the difference between the two? Was it just that they tried harder? Was it just that they were smaller, so it was easier to manage? What was going on? What was the difference between these two? And I'll give you the difference. By the time of Jesus, this is how it worked. In one system, in the temple system, mankind was central. He was the center of everything. In another system, in the second, in the new temple, right? I guess the, the new people of God is a temple. Christ was central. Original sin, the first sin of Adam and Eve was, God, I don't want you to be in charge. I want to be in charge. 
I don't want you to be the center of my life. I want to be the center of my life. And that's what, in essence, the, the temple was doing. And think about some of these big themes. Think about one of our big themes today, unity. How do we do unity? Well, in a man-centered system where people are the middle, you have to go, I will be united to you as long as you're kind of like me. As long as you conform to what I need, we can be buddies. But in a Christ-centered system, all we need is to conform to Christ. As long as we're both trying to be like Jesus, I don't care what you're like, you know. You don't have to be like me. We're both trying to be like Christ. Or think about, so that's unity. Think about poverty. In a man-centered system, it's, I'm going to keep what's mine unless I have a reason not to. In a Christ-centered system is, I'm going to give everything I have to serve people the way that he served me. Right? I want, I want to be like Jesus because that's who he's turning me into. In a, in a, let's see, third theme, grace. In a man-centered system, everything is about, I have to earn what I get. In a Christ-centered system, it's he's earned it for me. And so I have a much looser grip on everything. Or power. In a man-centered system, in a man-centered system, power is like, I have to figure this out. I have to control my situation. But in a Christ-centered situation, in a Christ-centered system, it's I have to surrender to him and just let him do what he wants. I don't have to constantly be in control of everything. Or holiness. In a man-centered system, I need superficial holiness, like surface-level holiness, so I can earn my salvation. But in a Christ-centered system, it's I need the internal holiness that comes from the Spirit's sanctifying work. And so Luke is constantly portraying these two systems. One of them is just very man-centered, and one of them is completely centered on Christ. And that's the difference. And that's how these guys were able to take care of their poor the way that the man-centered system wasn't uh, and, you know, and couldn't. And so the application then here of this passage is we, as a small little church in San Francisco, we are the continuation of this true and better temple. That fire, isn't it, okay, I could have looked this up, but isn't the Olympic torch, like, supposed to, like, keep going? Isn't it on fire somewhere right now? Has it been for a long time? Right, it just goes from one to the other, and that fire keeps going? That's the church, right, where the, the fire keeps going. It moves from church to church, and it keeps spreading, and we are the continuation of this new temple, we're an offshoot of this community. And so the application is to, to emulate this church. But um, let me say this. What we read in this text is truly amazing, right? These people were literally selling houses to take care of their brothers and sisters at church. There's a radical shift here with these folks from the self-centered human heart that says, I need to take as much as I can so I can take care of myself. So I need to give as much as I can and then, so I can take care of the people around me. These were a truly selfless people. And I think that that's worth emulating, but I don't think it's a good sermon to get up here and say you should just be more like them. Maybe emulating them not in the way that you're thinking immediately. The application of a sermon like this can never be feel guilty and give me more money. Because, I mean, that is a burdensome, man-centered garbage sermon that, um, you know, there's a lot of churches. You can go find that sermon <laughs> at a lot of churches, but that's not a grace-filled sermon. I don't think the application is just do what they did and give more money to each other, give more money to the church and whatever, right? The application is this, do what they did to turn into the people that they turned into. 
And that's the question. What did they do? He tells us in the text. They sat with the apostles and they heard the stories about Jesus. Right? That's the application. It's just look at Jesus and then do whatever you want. Go out, just be completely enraptured with Christ and then go out there and do whatever you want with your money and your time and stuff. And I dare you to be as in love with Jesus as these guys were and then be terrible with money and be terrible with your relationships with each other. This is the unique freedom that the Christian faith offers, right? A true break at a heart level from the hold that our money and our stuff has on us, right? The Bible says every one of us is going to tie ourselves to somebody and something, right? You're, you're going to put your hopes and dreams in something. So tie yourself to Jesus. And when that happens, your money, God will fade away. Your money, if, if, if you're hugging Jesus, you don't have arms to hug money, right? That's kind of the idea. And so that's the application to this, this sermon is not, here's 10 steps we're going to do to overhaul our mercy ministry at the porch. Here's a whole new fund you can dump money into. And there's nothing like that at the end of the sermon. Here's the end of the sermon is hug Jesus so hard you're not hugging your money. And then just go live your life and do whatever you want. And I guarantee if that's the kind of church we are, we're going to look a lot more like these early disciples than we could just if we sucked it up and tried to do it ourselves. Make his glory the ultimate thing in your life and just see what happens. I dare you. (laughs) All right, let's pray.